Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher. It's Monday, the 27th of February, and welcome. This week, we're going to begin with some reporting from the MisinfoCon, which is a conference on fake news that was held over the weekend. Our own Nausicaa Renner was there, and he's going to come back and tell us what's to be done about fake news. Then we turn to a most unusual subject for us, Donald Trump and the media. Yet another chapter in the sort of strained relations between him and them and us. And finally, Texas Monthly. We had a series of stories over the last week about changes in the direction of the magazine and a profile of one of their top writers, and we'll get into that. Guiding us through this is Dave Uberti, a senior Delacorte fellow who's looking tanned. Tanned and rested. Thanks, Tanned Kyle. and rested. Why are you tanned and rested? Just got back from vacation, was brainstorming a lot of podcast ideas from Mexico City, and I'm ready to go. I don't know if I believe that, but welcome back. Thanks. Welcome back to The Kicker, and thanks for kicking it with us. We apologize for a scheduling snafu last week. We share space with the Columbia Journalism School and had to let students take precedent in the audio studio, but we're back with some more media and journalism discussion, and I'm back in a studio with the entire band, which is back together. Noska Renner, a Tau editor for CDR. <laughs> Noska, welcome back to the program. I'm so happy to be back, Dave. Me too, me I too. I missed it. And also Pete Vernon, a Delacorte fellow, immediately off of vacation from the West Coast, as I understand. Yeah, thanks for uh, not holding the podcast without me. Appreciate it. <laughs> right, we were just waiting for you to come back. You were on the West Coast, but at the same time, Noska, you were up in Boston for the Misinformation Conference. Misinfocon, yes. Misinfocon, which... Sounds almost as fun as Comic-Con. It sounds like a pageant. Right, right, exactly. So what was going on at Miss InfoCon? Uh, who was there? What do you learn? So it was hosted uh, by Neiman, First Draft, and Hacks Hackers. Most of the conference took place in the MIT Media Lab space, which, if you haven't been there, is an incredible building. So we got there, and the first thing to do was sort of to define the terms. And there were a couple of different presentations one by Claire Wardle, formerly of the Tau Center and now the head of First Draft News. That was sort of a typology of different types of misinformation. So unpacking a little bit based on motive, the spectrum of what misinformation could be. So first of all, you know, you have parody, which it's not an aggressive motive. There's no intention of actually fooling anybody, but it is incorrect information that goes out there. On the other side of the spectrum, you have something like propaganda, which is intentionally trying to uh, misinform the public and spread lies. And then in the middle, you have things that are a little more ambiguous. Claire's great example was a photo of refugees in Africa that was used in the context of Mexican immigrants coming over the southern U.S. border. And so using that kind of image out of context, that is you know, quote unquote, fake news or misinformation. But the intention is a little more ambiguous and it's not clear whether or not somebody is actually trying to fool you or if it was a mistake. Was fake news a category within these or was it sort of an umbrella term? So I think fake news is the umbrella term. And then obviously the Macedonian teenagers like spreading links on Facebook for monetary reasons, are is different than the Russian government spreading links in France's election yeah, and trying think, to change things. I think this is like really useful and probably useful to throw out the term fake news completely, just because it's it seems to have lost meaning and is now 
used to mean so many different things, everything from stories we don't like to things made up by Macedonian teenagers. And so I like the way that she's gone through this dichotomy and said, here are the characteristics of each of these. She's developed these seven categories. Um, Yeah. And I remember Margaret Sullivan wrote a great uh, post column, maybe in December, that about how, you know, we have to lose the term fake news. We have to throw it out because it could mean hoax. It could mean conspiracy theory. I thought was really helpful about Claire's chart was that it mapped the different uh, possibilities of fake news onto a spectrum of intentionality and and what it could actually look like. Prescription-wise, did anyone come to MissInfoCon with a better plan of attack that we haven't explored yet or maybe we haven't effectively explored thus far? Because I feel like this has been such a hot topic. Everyone has their hair on fire yeah. over it. And and when I say this topic, I mean like the broader topic, not just fake news from Macedonia, but just misinformation on the Internet, how it spreads. Yeah. Well, what I realized uh, when I got there that I didn't fully know about the conference was that the main thrust of it was really to bring journalists and technologists into the same space. You can tell from me using the word technologist that I've spent all weekend (laughs) at MIT. But, I mean, there was there were a lot of software developers there, and it felt like there was theory coming from journalists and then developers coming in with their ideas and sort of workshopping back and forth about what tools would be useful or what uh, sort of pressures do we more broadly need. So the majority of the conference was spent in a hackathon where there were about 20 projects that came out of it after you know, 15 hours of working on things in small groups. There were some really interesting things. I mean, there was a group of people working on voice, so things like Alexa and Google Home, who wanted to make news delivery more transparent on those voice devices. So, for instance, when you ask Alexa, what are the headlines today? She can tell you the headlines, but she can't tell you. You can't ask follow-up questions, basically. You can't ask who the author was. You can't ask... If there were other stories about the same topic, you can't ask when it was published. You might actually have to buy the newspaper, God forbid. Yeah. <laughs> but if we're moving toward, you know, a, a society where voice-activated stuff is uh, more and more pervasive, these are really simple things that, you know, journalists really want and the developers are starting to think about, too. And I spoke to one person who was on that team who was basically like, look, like, I never have worked on anything voice before but now that I've been on this team, like I'll probably build something in the next six months, and I wouldn't have done that if I hadn't come to this. So that was a really concrete example of something simple that will improve the news environment. When you talk about technologists and journalists being in the same room, and you said uh, having spent the weekend at MIT, you were thrown around words like technologists. Yeah. Uh, right. As somebody who spent the weekend, I'm a techno utopian. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I was gonna say, as someone who spent the weekend eating oysters in San Francisco and not at MIT. What what does that mean? Like, who are the technologists? What do they do? And like, who do they work for? They're usually everywhere from, you know, directors of product to software developers. That, that was sort of the range that I and saw. And are they at like uh, universities? Or are they working for like... No, they're like actively coding as a full-time job or as, as consultants. I mean, there are people there from Alexa, from Google Newsstand, from from, you know, the Google News Initiative. No Facebook? No, no. Facebook was not there, which I was surprised because they usually, I mean, maybe I miss them, but they usually sort of show up to this kind of event. Whenever these discussions come up, 
I get the sense that there's like a fundamental divide between journalists and quote unquote technologists who are rolling in money and who don't understand the the terrible resource constraints that journalism is in compared to where it was 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's something that is understood or is there some way to bridge that divide? Should journalists be thinking differently in order to connect with technologists more? Yeah, the the funding was interesting because I mean, when I say technologists, I'm thinking more about people who are who are working, who are employed by technology companies, not people who are owning technologies or necessarily making the decisions about algorithms. There were a lot of people who were wanting to fund tools there, but it tended to be more on the philanthropic side. So like, you know, the Knight Foundation was a big part of it. In some sense, you know, these these meetups and these tools, it feels like it is working towards something. But for sure, the elephant in the room is not really being able to make uh, internal changes. So you can make a tool that overlays on the internet or tries to find fake news sites and blocks them from receiving Google AdWords advertising, for instance, and you can improve the technology that points out those sites. But until you get the people who are really in control <laughs> on board, it does feel a little bit like, you know, we're like little ants, like raising our fists that. <laughs> at a giant human. Was there any discussion of how people are receiving the news? It sounds like you're focused a lot on like the production of news. Was there any conversation about like the audience? Yeah, that was a re- it was a really good conversation. There was a group called Changing the Narrative that was mostly I think journalists who and they were talking about making the journalistic process more transparent to readers, so anything from adding headshots to uh, reporter's bios so that you can see the person to if you FOIA'd 10,000 uh, records to get a story sh- say that and and say what the origin of the story was as much as you can a- and to make sure that people who think that news isn't objective because no person could possibly be objective to show them that it's not just this was a quote from the changing the narrative presentation that objectivity is a process, not just a state of mind, which I, I thought was really illuminating. Uh, unfortunately, they didn't have like a, a really directed tool to try to do that, but I think that this kind of conversation is starting is really good or continuing. <laughs> as long as objectivity isn't an algorithm. Yes, indeed. So since I've been out of the loop all weekend, I was hoping that you guys could give me an update on Ooh. what Trump has been tweeting about. Nothing much happened. What did I miss? No, nothing, I saw nothing the Oscars. Going on. <laughs> I saw the Oscars thing. Uh-huh. I saw that Trump dropped out of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, but something tells me that... Ooh, we got some news for you. Well, yeah? luckily, th- I printed out all of Donald Trump's tweets <laughs> from the last five days, so I have you covered. Um, no, I mean, it, it's there's been a lot going on in, in national politics and its relationship with media. The Trump administration has repeatedly threatened to go after leakers in one form or another. At the Conservative Political Action Conference, Trump once again called the media the enemy of the American people. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer barred a handful of mainstream outlets from a press gaggle on Friday, leading to uproar from brass at the New York Times, Washington Post, CNN, and elsewhere. 
more recently, there was a report that Sean Spicer was also checking some of his communication staffers' phones for uh, whether they was, were leaking to the, the press. This was my favorite story of the weekend, which was that Sean Spicer called in his communications team to a conference room, told them all to take out their phones, any devices, uh, and then apparently there was a phone check. This was reported in Politico. Basically, they were trying to figure out what apps people were using, whether or not people on his staff were communicating with reporters that Spicer didn't approve of. And he he warned the staffers that should news of this meeting leak, there would be consequences. A few hours later, there was a story up on Politico about the meeting. And, and were there consequences? We don't know yet. Yet to be seen. And then today, on Monday, as we tape this episode, the White House circulated bullet points from its forthcoming address to Congress on Tuesday to InfoWars, among other outlets. InfoWars is famous for, among other things, uh, being a Sandy Hook conspiracist website. Oh, and by the way, Trump's Navy secretary withdrew as CBS's Major Garrett reported right. uh, was going to happen about 10 days ago. Sean Spicer told him his sources were wrong. This was not going to happen. And then it happened. So details, details. What I'm curious about is with all of this stuff happening between Trump and the media, all of it makes us go crazy for one reason or another. It insults our intelligence. It violates norms that we've used to sort of govern our relationship to politicians for decades. How should we rank all these things? Should we try to put a hierarchy on all of the transgressions as we see them from the Trump White House? Or is it impossible to do so? I certainly feel like it's evolving to something of like a confusing ball of information that is hard to straighten out. Right. And I mean, as all this is going on, there's also real policy being made. So there's been some suggestion from journalists and, and others that we're all making too much of this. We should stop being concerned about Trump picking on us and calling us names and focus on real policy issues. And I, I think there's some merit to that. And I think we have, as as a journalistic community, the ability to do both things. Our job here, obviously, is to study the media and report on it. So we have the luxury of not having to worry about sources within the State Department or anything like that. We can just look at the impact that his administration is having on the, the free press. Yeah. On the other hand, I feel like some of these stories are repeats. It's like I've, I've heard all of this stuff <laughs> Greatest before. hits, Sean Spicer edition. And, and maybe the fact that you know, press is, uh, Trump is kind of going into a loop with his his press insults. <laughs> it could be a good thing for how we cover it. The thing I'm curious about, and it's impossible to say until there's better polling on issues or current events, is I would argue that there's no news cycles anymore, no distinct news cycles where stories sort of have a you know arc of growing interest or momentum via journalists and the public and then diminishing and replaced by another story. Now it's just sort of meshed into this wild tangle of stories from a trillion different angles reported by so many different outlets with different standards. Meanwhile, Trump is tweeting throughout it all. And I feel like in that environment, the only storyline that is easy to understand and that sort of breaks through all of that noise is Trump versus the media. Part of it is that he keeps bringing it up. He's obviously not very interested in talking about any suggestion of connections with Russia. He's not interested in talking about Michael Flynn resigning. He's very interested in attacking the media and has done it in front of the memorial wall at the CIA. He's done it on stage at CPAC. It'll be interesting to see whether he does it tomorrow in front of a joint session of Congress. We're recording this on Monday afternoon, and I wonder if we'll hear more attacks on the media. And I wonder if people will cheer for it. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. So do you feel tired, Dave? I am so tired. 
I am more tired than I can remember being, partly because I just got back from Mexico City last week on vacation and I drank too much tequila there. <laughs> what's, what's the media climate like in Mexico City? There's a few people on my trip who spoke fluent Spanish, and we would have discussions with people there. Uh, and they, they were certainly on edge in the days preceding Rex Tillerson's visit to Mexico. But there was sort of widespread fear and apprehension about the relationship toward the United States. Trump and the Trump administration were, were definitely making front page news on most days that I was down there. I don't know. I, I feel like I'm, I'm tired, too, but I'm also kind of bored. I'm, I'm bored with having to follow the White House correspondence dinner, for instance. Right. Well, I mean, this might be the last time we need to follow it that often, to yeah. be perfectly honest. I mean, Trump said, what was that, Friday now, where he said he wasn't going yeah, to? Yeah, Friday or Saturday, he uh, sent out in a tweet, told everybody to have a good time, but that he wasn't going to be there. And I think you're right. That probably is... Uh, a story that doesn't need to be rehashed over and over again. But let's but, rehash it. Okay. Trump Trump got embarrassed at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. A lot of people think that's uh, why he ran. He got embarrassed, and now he's not going. What do you guys think about that? Is that a good or a bad thing for journalism? It's a bad thing for ratings, but it's probably a good thing that there's... And, and it's not specific to Trump. You know, the whole night was a little bit of a... Uh, it just... It, it, it was... A little sleazy, a little sleazy. Uh, yeah, well, sleazy is a fair word for it. I was, yeah, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was searching for something not as uh, derogatory, but Did, that's what it was. Well, I think it also shows what impeccable timing Trump has. Like, he waited until it was in the news enough. It was coming up. It's sort of a sleazy event. People were sort of deciding if they wanted to go or not. A couple people dropped off. Most people didn't get the chance to drop out and before Trump himself. Yeah. It shows just how good he is at preempting. You know, it could be a good thing for the media at large. There's been momentum building that you shouldn't go to the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And maybe this is a thing that will push people over the edge to not go, or at least to reform the dinner in a way yeah, that I mean, actually makes it constructive and right. sort of not a laughingstock. There's still things that you can do. And I think the interest, uh, we, you know, we've seen it in terms of our tr web traffic. Like people are, are very interested in the relationship between the media, the administration, the New York Times just bought an ad on the Oscars telecast last night. The media is in the news. And so I think there's probably a way for these news organizations to turn the night into something that could be productive. You can bring in Alec Baldwin to play Trump and or something. Bring in some comedian, big name comedian, make it about the press's role in democracy. Nuska, you don't like the Alec Baldwin no, idea? No, no, no. I'm just laughing because it's like we just we always have to be productive. <laughs> it's like we always have to be constructive. And why can't we get a little fun around here? Can't we be reductive? <laughs> Nuska, straight back from Misinfo Conference. <laughs> there you have it. <laughs> I got all kinds of crazy ideas now. <laughs> My guest today is Liz Len. She's a freelance writer based in Iowa. Liz wrote a couple of kick-ass stories for CGR.org last week about Texas Monthly, and we want to get into the local news portion of our discussion with that. So for those of you who don't know, Texas Monthly is known within journalism circles for its long tradition of in-depth political coverage and literary features. With more than 300,000 subscribers, its tagline is The National Magazine of Texas, and routinely publishes some of the best writing in the country. But there appears to be growing tension at the magazine, particularly after it was sold to a private equity firm last year. Liz, you did some great reporting on this. What did you learn about the new ownership's plans for the magazine, and how are people feeling out there in Texas? When I was working on this profile for Pam, it was interesting. 
the PR people at the magazine didn't really want me to talk to many people at the magazine. They just wanted me to talk to Pam, and that was it. Dead giveaway. Um, yeah, dead giveaway. So my spidey senses were going off a little bit, but you know, I did want to stick to the profile. So I ended up getting the the new editor in chief on the phone. And he was very forthcoming with his plans for the magazine, which I don't know if that reveals even a little bit more tension within, you know, what was going on at the time. He talked about working on building up multimedia aspects of the website and lifestyle in particular. He wanted to um, really build that out as a part of their brand. And then he also mentioned coming back on some local political coverage mm-hmm. and um and when i pushed him on that you know like why would you do that and uh you know he said very clearly that texans don't like politics which i actually lived in texas for 13 years so that didn't feel very true yeah what was your uh, it seems like such an interesting thing to say I'm, I'm, I'm just curious what what context did that come in that that just seems odd for a magazine <laughs> editor to to say to a reporter good question about the context because I think that that's something that a lot of people had. Well, the context was me saying, do you plan on cutting back you know, on anything? And he said, local political coverage. Mm-hmm. I said, why? And he said, because Texans don't like politics. And I said, that doesn't seem to be true. And uh, he said, well, maybe I just don't like politics. And then I asked him for some examples because they'd recently had a big uh, interview by Pam Koloff with Dan Rathers. So I asked him if that was on the cutting table. He said no, because that was national. But he mentioned more local political stuff, uh, giving the example of bills about transgender bathrooms, right. which still seems to be pretty relevant, especially since Texas is often a crucible for a lot of the larger issues that we face as a nation. Texas Monthly is widely known outside of Texas, but you know, I think obviously it's very early to tell based on what you've learned in, in your reports. We got to give the new ownership and management mm-hmm. a chance. But you know, across the country, when you look at sort of the landscape of magazines, there have been a ton of cutbacks on sort of the metro or regional right. focused magazines, places like Chicago or LA Magazine or Boston, for example. And that does, you know, that does leave a hole in your local media environment. You, you do Texas Monthly provides some like really, really awesome long form journalism about Texas, the South, a lot of national or universal issues sort of tailored for a more Texan audience. So, I mean, I'm curious when you talk to people there, either current or former staffers, were there, was it just general trepidation about a change in ownership or did they see other writing on the wall? I did speak to a lot of people um, about what was going on in the newsroom with the sale and the change, and none of them wanted to go on the record, which is completely understandable. We work in media, you know, it's hard to find a job, and it's hard to keep a job once you have one. So, um, but yes, definitely, I think you could say that a lot of people around the magazine had kind of suspected or known about these plans before CJR published the story, and they were very concerned about it because um, that's a lot of what Texas Monthly does is, you know, hold their local politicians' feet to the fire and really examine them in a way that I think is relevant, not just to the state, but to the nation, because so many of these 
politicians go on to, you know, seek public office and right. uh, in a national scale. Right, certainly. So regardless of what happens, they still have their marquee talent at the center of this all. Executive editor Pamela Koloff, who you profiled for CJR, She's a very excellent writer. She's been nominated for a ton of national magazine awards. I love her work, particularly in the, some of the work she's done regarding uh, the UT Austin shooting about 50 years ago. You quoted one of her former colleagues describing her with a particularly delicious quote. And he said, in terms of the rarity of Pam's toolkit, she is like a unicorn chased by a chupacabra eaten by Bigfoot. So tell me, what makes Koloff such a special journalist? Is it her skill set? Is it a set of personal traits? What allows her to, to create these insanely good and detailed narratives in her writing? First of all, Evan Smith just gives the best quote. Um, so that <laughs> Thank you, Evan. <laughs> that, I, and, and I think maybe he doesn't get enough credit for that skill. So I think as far as Tim goes, it's a lot of things. She has a real personable nature. When you talk to her, I, and, and everybody across the board has said the same thing, that when you talk to her, it's it's an enjoyable experience. You want to talk to her. Right. It feels like talking to a friend. And I think that that is because she is such a good listener. And this comes out in many ways, how she really prepares for interviews. But when she goes in, she's not taking notes. Um, she doesn't like to use a recorder. Hmm. Um, so she's just sitting there listening intently, and then we'll go back out to her car and record her impressions of the interview and then write down notes from there. So she's a really excellent listener, and that's such a good skill set as a journalist. But I think it also you know, speaks to critical thinking skills that she's right. good at, hearing what people have to say and parsing that out into a profile that doesn't feel heavy. And I think another way that comes out is how she uses quotes and quotations. It's very light mm -hmm. and uh, seamless, I think, within her narratives. You spent some time with her, it seems. I mean, do you, do you get the sense that, that her interviewing abilities, is that something innate or is that something that she's developed over time? I think it's really innate. I asked her, you know, um, does she have like an affect or does she kind of, uh, you know, play different angles? When she goes in with a DA, is it different than when she's talking to a victim? And I pushed her on this a little and she really just said she just goes in with her questions. You know, I think her, her goal is to go in as knowledgeable as possible armed with every single transcript, every single news story, everything she can get her hands on before she goes into those interviews. So she's very prepared and very intuitive um, and very sharp. So, you know, it's not like she's going in like everybody's best friend. Sure. She goes in armed, but she, um, if she came to the interview with me, very, very prepared. She knew so much about me. And, uh, but I think that that is, a gut thing, her ability to kind of feel people out and when mm. to ask questions because she, she just says she kind of goes off on instinct that she doesn't feel like it's something that she has necessarily uh, worked on. Although, you know, it's a skill like anything else sure. to get better at over time. But I, I do think it is a real, a real instinct that she has. Right. Um, I'm, I'm curious. Her mom's a lawyer. Her dad's, uh, you know, worked in TV. I think some of this has to be, you know, in the DNA maybe too. Developed around the dinner table once upon a time. Yeah. She's an extremely elite writer, widely heralded for her work, but she's also executive editor of the Texas Monthly. 
you see this at some other places as well. At like the New Yorker, David Remnick writes occasional features, but he's also the editor. He runs the show. I'm curious with regard to Pam Koloff. How do you think she sort of splits up her division of labor insofar as you know doing her own stories versus managing the operation, trying to mentor new writers, helping out other people on the staff? It's a small staff. They have a lot of contributors mm. or um, people who used to, you know, be in the newsroom, but now maybe aren't there every day. Like, you know, Skip Hollingsworth contributes every once in a while and is on the masthead, but he's not in the the newsroom quite as often as everybody else. So the sense that I got is that it's really informal, and I think that's what makes Texas Monthly so unique is that they are given the ability, like Pam is given the ability to just really work on these longer stories and while she's working on them, you know, she doesn't have to, like, crank out 45 quick takes in addition <laughs> to her longer reported piece, but she right. can just really work on her one story and then work with other writers. And the sense that I got is that people just come to her, you know, that they, uh, they, they value her opinion, and so they come to her even before a story is pitched, asking her for her advice and her angle and where, you know, where to go for more information. And so it sounds like she's working with these stories from, you know, the very get-go so that by the time it gets to a completed draft, she's not quite so hands-on at that point. Right. So one one last question before I let you go here. For people who are trying to get into journalism, who are trying to get better at journalism, or for, for people who just like some good writing, if you had to recommend a couple, maybe two or three Pam Koloff stories... Which ones would you recommend and why? Why are they emblematic of her, her style or expertise? My two favorites are Flesh and Blood and An Unholy Act. So Flesh and Blood is a story about a daughter. Well, I don't want to give it away. But a story <laughs> of a family and uh, in peril, let's say. And there's murders. And I love what she does in there because the, the characters, the real people, but in some ways, they play into Texas stereotypes. But the way Pam allows them to be complicated on the page, I think it's very subtle, but it's very intentional. Mm. And the detail, the level of detail in that story is just chilling. And a lot of it is told through the voice of the father who survived a really terrible attack. And he's just a great storyteller. So it also, I think, speaks to how much as a journalist you rely on your sources to give you good stories. You know, Pam said she's walked away from stories if her sources haven't been able to communicate in the way that the the father communicates in this story of flesh and blood. It's a real masterpiece of journalism, of character, of detail, and it will haunt you. An unholy act is uh, well, the reason I like Unholy Act, and there's so many reasons to like it, is how Pam uh, really embodies the town, or she gets into the voice of the city. So an Unholy Act is about a, a woman who uh, was murdered, and for years the police suspected that a local priest had killed her, but there was no evidence. And so at some point after a failed attempt at getting a grand jury to indict this priest, the police got so frustrated and just said, 
any journalist who wants to come look at our files, come look at our files. <laughs> hmm. And, uh, and, and so, which is rare in a cold case, you know, they, police like to keep those files close to them. One of those writers was Pam and she went in and, uh, and also, you know, did extra investigations. So her ability to just kind of speak for the town and, give a sense of how they felt about this priest and what this murder meant to them in a way that's not saying, and so-and-so said, and right. so-and-so said. Um, Gives it a more gritty really feel. Like, yeah, it's almost like a rose for Miss Emily or something in that kind of level of, you know, we felt this way. Right. So I really like that. Also, one of the few times she she uh, uses the I point of view, the first person point of view happens at the end of that story. Ooh. Well, (laughs) we will include both of those pieces in our show notes in addition to Liz Lenz reporting for CGR. Liz, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you so much. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. I want to thank my co-panelists here, Noska Renner, Tao Eder for CJR, and Pete Vernon, a Delacorte fellow for CJR, and also my special guest, Liz Lenz. Go to our website, subscribe to CJR. You get membership benefits that include a few print issues every year in addition to a weekly newsletter that I write. Subscribe to The Kicker on iTunes and Stitcher, and please, please, please leave us a comment and a rating. Thanks again for kicking it with us. We'll see you next week.